This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Great interview with Stan Ellsworth um, about the importance of history. And a lot of us, I just, I don't think we get it. As much as, I mean, I don't get it. Do you know a lot of history? Do you know about American history? Could you sit down this holiday season and talk about some of these great moments and stories of, of valor and bravery on battlefields? Do you know about that? Because if your kids are asking you questions like mine are, holy cow, it's scary. So we probably need to step up and, and, and maybe do a little exercise mentally this weekend. Um, don't just let Memorial Day be the vacation weekend, the beginning of summer. Kids are out of school vacation time. Is there a way that we could just take a little time, tell a story, find two or three stories, go to a graveyard, and go buy some flowers and actually go put them on the, the graves of, of soldiers or somebody that, uh, that served this country. It's, a, it's just an opportunity to teach your kids, your grandkids. We need these stories handed down. So one of the things I suggest that would really help is go find people that are in your family that have been a part of uh, – that have served in the military and go tell their stories. Everybody has somebody somewhere in their family history who's probably been in the military. Go talk about it. If they're alive, go take your kids on Memorial Day and celebrate that person. If you have a neighbor that served in Iraq, take them something. Make an effort to go out of your way to thank somebody in the armed services, in the military. There will be parades. Go look for the parades in your area. But make it a point to actually direct this Memorial Day to the memory of those that have served and given their lives and um, and teach your kids and your grandkids. It doesn't mean you still can't go, you know, to the ball game or boating or do whatever you do. But it's powerful, folks. And Memorial Day is it's, – it's a day I also remember vividly going with my family to the – you know, to cemeteries, getting all the flowers out, taking care of uh, – of the sights of, of my family members that had passed away and also to hear the stories. I remember sitting in the back of the truck and the uncles talking about those that had gone to war and what had happened and who died where and how that happened. And I remember hearing the stories. And I remember them being handed down. I remember the pictures of an uncle in a Navy uniform. And sadly, I don't even remember him. So then my kids are like, so have you served in the military, Dad? No, no, I haven't. But you had a, I had an uncle that did. Really, where did he serve? No idea. So we want to change this, uh, this 
part of our life and start to actually carry the stories forward. I think Stan made a great point that if we don't bring the stories forward, we are losing the history, but we're also losing ourselves. Then what do the kids think is the key to being an American? If it's not the battlefield and the character, and you see it when we talk about Iraq, we talk about how many Americans died there, but we also just talk about the ability of an American to stand and fight and fight for what you need to fight for. And Americans seem to have that. But we may not have that if we don't keep the stories and the rights and the privileges clear in our kids' minds. Someday we might lose the willingness to fight for what we believe in. Heaven forbid, can you imagine the day that we no longer understand the price of freedom? So just challenge it, all of us, myself included. We need to do something more this this uh, weekend than just going out and having a great barbecue. Also, it's a great time, I think, to just start traditions and to create some traditions. I mean, if you really, if to make it easy, go find American Ride on BYU or uh, on BYU TV and um, watch a few segments of it. Go watch what happened at Gettysburg. Go watch what happened at Valley Forge and see if you don't feel something. The, the amazing thing about the country and all of the lives that have been given is there's an incredible spirit to it. There's an incredible peace to it. It's a religious type of experience. So what if we just turn that on? Try that. Monday morning when you wake up, turn on American Ride. Go find two or three shows. Just start watching it. And you know what? Your kids will gather around and focus on it. Then talk about it. Use those conversations. Use those stories to put, uh, to put some conversations into the minds and the hearts. Ask some questions. Can you imagine going to war at 15? Ask your 15-year-old son that. Can I take my iPhone? No. There's just a lot of great uh, things we've been given and blessed with. And so I challenge you to, to make it a point this year to talk to your kids about it. Also, make it a really important point to connect to those uh, other generations that are older, your grandparents, your great-grandparents. They have so many stories. And go ask them about the war. One of my favorite guests, go look up in our podcast. I've, I did a show with a, a man named Terry Herschel. And... Uh, it was phenomenal, a Vietnam vet. And he tells – all he does is he tells the stories about Vietnam. And you see this is a guy that saw the people closest to him dying regularly. He was a medic. And I sit there and I think, wow, he's lived through all of that and is willing to talk and share and is honored. You know, at assemblies they honored him recently. But nobody knows what that man went through for our country. And he doesn't want to talk about it very much. It was painful. It's hard to go back to. But he will share it if he thinks it'll move the life and the heart of a child. So go find those stories, folks. Um, they're out there everywhere. All you got to do is listen to the stories of the, the vets coming home from these wars. They're losing arms. They're losing legs. They're losing their lives. So um, let's make a difference on this Memorial Day. That's the challenge from the Matt Townsend Show. Everybody, let's go do it. Make it better and, and make it a tradition in your family to always honor the great blessings of being an American.
You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we always uh, joke, laugh about the millennials and how they're, you know, they're not leaving home. They just keep boomeranging back. But you know what? Um, there's something to that. They they have such a great relationship with their parents. That's not all bad. Well, yeah, but people need to grow up and they need to learn to be on their own. Sure. Okay. Yeah. And they also need to learn to relate to their parents. So you may already have that great relationship with your kids. You may also be wondering, uh, you don't want to over, you don't want to enable it, right? You don't want them to never learn how to get on their feet. So that idea she was bringing up of maybe if they come back, you, you basically create a contract with them. And I, I'm a big believer in that. And you sit down and we create a win-win. And you talk to your millennial and you tell them what's a win for you and what's a win for them. I loved Christine's idea that you have the the millennial be in charge of your technology. If they're going to live at home, you be in charge of your technology. That Let them be in charge of the technology in making sure you've got the best router and the best Wi-Fi numbers and I mean, use that, and let's have a plan for how you're going to pay off your debt. So the way I would do it is to make sure the child's getting ahead, not just, you know, getting comfortable, but that they're getting ahead in their debt. So I'd probably sit down with them and and have them set some goals, have them explain what their goals are, and start making sure that uh, maybe in a quarterly meeting or something, we just talk about how things are working. I'd also maybe... You know, be careful about giving them their free space. Give them enough free space. Um, it doesn't mean you, you always have to make every meal for them. You might even want to negotiate that. Should I plan on making a meal for you? How does that work? And and what happens when we bring friends over and, and all of those discussions that need to be there? But you're not going to get very far with your millennials if you if you just have a bunch of ideas like they're just no good. You know, they're just weird. These kids aren't the same. They're not going to be like a baby boomer. They're not going to be like a Gen Xer. They're just different. And your child is even different from that. So there are some, you know, uh, millennials that um, Christine was calling Henry's, high earners, not rich yet, Henry's. Um, and, And, you know, maybe there's some that just love video games. So those that love video games, I wouldn't just probably have your millennial just come home and work on video games all day. I would make sure that there's some other plan, and um, that that's a hard role you got to play. I have a child that's about to graduate from college or from high school, and you know it's time to set some new rules and some limits. And he's incredibly smart, and yet doesn't love school and yet is incredibly talented online and has built you know websites and youtube pages and knows how to get traffic to them and knows how to make money online and all legal and ethical and moral so we've got a really big plan for him <laughs> when school's done he's going to get a job we're not even going to pretend to send him to college yet he's going to get a job and we're going to negotiate a really good deal where he can live at home, but he's got to get learning what a work life is like. And it's hard because he can make money, you know, putting together a wedding video for some couple and make great money and get it done in a day's work and then doesn't have work tomorrow. 
So everybody's different. So don't just assume that any age you know, difference is going to automatically be a millennial. Figure out your child. Figure out what their wins are. What do they need out of the deal? And what do you need out of the deal? Be sure that you also share your win. To make a win-win, it's got to be mutually beneficial. You both have to be winning. Don't assume you know what their win is. Well, your win is that you get a place to sit and eat. Well, that's not always a win. They might be able to get that somewhere else, and it may not be better for them. Figure out what their win is and also be willing to voice what your win is. I'd also make the the arrangement short-term and evaluated regularly. Let's evaluate it today. Let's evaluate it in in every quarter. Let's just sit down and see how we're doing. Is this agreement working for you? Is it working for me? I would really tie it to some other goals like financial uh, debt payments, advancing, you know, or, or money, aggregating money so that these people can go out and get into something like a home or if they're dating somebody, eventually get married or whatever. So it, it's a plan. Everybody is different. Um, and uh, I think in the end, you're, you're going to want to stay close to these people as well. We talked to, to other guests last week that so many people are just, you know, they're big into just getting away from everybody, going, you know, make their big money in New York. And when they get to New York, they find out that that's not what makes them happy. What makes them happy is being at home with their family and seeing their family and being close to, you know, the a lot of other benefits. So talk to your kids, for heaven's sake. Let's just figure this out. We can figure it out together. We're smart people. Don't judge the millennials. Um and don't just judge them by a generation. Judge, you know, talk to them. Figure out what your kids' goals are. They need your feedback. They need your push. They need your insight. They also need your patience. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, nowadays, a hot term that we all hear used uh, and thrown around, I think, everywhere is this term millennial. Well, exactly what designates a millennial and why are there so many differences between them and the generation before them? Studies show that in today's world, millennials handle situations much differently than those generations before them. But does that mean their methods are wrong or just misunderstood? Uh, Miss J.T. O'Donnell, founder and CEO of CareerHMO.com, joins us this morning uh, to help us get some new insights into how these uh, millennial generations are dealing with adversity and uh, helping us better understand their differences. Good morning, J.T. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. You bet. Honored to have you. And uh, I'm excited about this this discussion because I, I work with millennials. All As over the I. place. As do you, right? Now, you wrote yes, this article yes. in Inc. Magazine. Um, you contributed to it. And uh, two emerging millennial mindsets in the workplace. First of all, just explain to us 
the age what what is the age range of a millennial so everyone out there in listener land knows yeah so it's anybody that was born in the 80s and 90s and if you want to be particular they say the official start date was 1982 and the official end date was 2004 okay Uh, and so millennials as you spoke of over those course of 20 years have been raised differently and as adults and entering into the workplace we're seeing some pretty significant differences Uh, and the article that i wrote about uh, talked about sort of a splitting of them because now they're starting to get into their late 20s have some work experience underneath their belt and have had these experiences that are sending them in two different directions and it was very apparent through a very public exchange between two young millennial women <laughs> this is um to me I loved it and I, I I sometimes worry when we put people in these generational categories cuz sometimes they don't fit, right? They don't fit and I think that that was the point of the article that I wanted to show people is just how different these two women were approaching their situation so that we don't put them all in one category. And yeah. so, you know, you had one one woman who uh, was very upset, very vocal, very public, uh, uh, did a lot of employer shaming to her employer about, you know, hey, you're the reason my, my whole life is a mess. <laughs> and then you had another woman step in and write a pretty scathing rebuttal to this young woman saying, you know, I was in the same exact situation you were, probably worse, and I didn't approach it this way. And here's what I've learned along the way. And so um, it really comes down to, I I think, seeing which millennials are acquiring grit Mm -hmm. and which ones aren't. Oh, interesting. And so walk us through some of your learnings. What what are you seeing, um, you know, because they are upset. This is is a generation that is upset and, and probably warranted, right? Justifiably so. Most definitely. And I can point to four major things that says they are entitled to be upset. First of all, they're the most educated and the least professionally mature. So all of them have a lot of college debt, major college debt. And that's point number two that they're carrying that previous generations did not have. Um, And then you go into the fact that they're the most underemployed. 26% of them are underemployed. Mm. They're not using their skill sets. So they're not engaged at work, right? They're there all day long feeling um, not properly utilized. Um, And then that fourth one is the fact that they lack coping skills and skills for failure. So when you're raised in a generation where everybody gets a participation prize, and there's a lot of that external motivators, which was heavily embraced with the millennial generation. It's great. It incented them. It motivated them externally. But when you get to work, that paycheck and that job is your reward. <laughs> right. So you're not going to get that praise and those you know, participation prizes. You really have to change gears. Well, they haven't been taught that. And so suddenly you're coping with not being perceived as uh, doing a good job and, and getting criticized. And they haven't really been taught how to deal with that. And they're when you say they're most educated but least mature, I guess that's because, you know, the other generations have to hang on and work longer, right? So they're highly educated, but they can't progress in their jobs because no one's leaving. Partially true, yeah. So people are staying longer. But actually, less than 30% of millennials have held uh, internships or jobs that have mm. real work-related skills, right? Um, they've been in organized sports and activities their entire lives. They've been heavily scheduled, but not necessarily in work environments. So it's one thing to go to school and get a degree. It's another to have practical experience where you understand what it's like to be on the job. And so they're coming into the workplace without those skills, and they're really being affected by it. That's true. I guess that would then hold them back, right? Because... Very much so. Anybody yeah, that's been employers. working, yeah. Yeah, employers don't want to be your parents, mm-hmm. you know. And so we have uh, millennials arriving on the scene and saying, well, hey, you know, you should be coaching me. And that's not how the employers see it. And, 
you know, hey, you know, my happiness is important. Well, not to the employer, it isn't. You know, <laughs> you're being paid to do a job, figure out your own happiness. So there's this steep learning curve that's going on in those first few years of a millennial's life out in the work world. Um, and, you know, that's why I have great compassion for them because they weren't prepared for this. It's kind of like throwing the baby in the deep end of the pool and saying, swim, right? And right. they weren't given the right tools. Well, and, yeah. And, uh, and they even got into the debt probably not knowingly, right? They just thought they were doing what everyone does. Yeah. Oh, completely unaware, right? And and for many, overpaying for an education and um, not thinking about it. And, you know, I've had parents call me and say, why did I pay for this education? And the first thing I ask them is, you know, do you, do you have investments? Do you, do you have a 401k? Do you manage financial investments? Oh, of course. Do you completely ignore your financial planner? No, I check in all the time. Did you check in all the time over those four years of that college education? Were you really looking at what was going into that investment? Because, again, young people today are just doing what they were told to do, right? Go to school, and when you graduate, you'll get a great job. And they went on autopilot only to find out that's not the case. So true. So in a way, um, the, if we needed somebody to blame, the millennials could look to their parents. They could. They could also look to the system. Uh, you know, schools are charging a lot of money, and yet very few schools have formal programs where students should be doing internships all four years. There's no required coursework around identifying career paths and developing your career skills. Honestly, going to the career center is a voluntary thing that most young people aren't thinking about till second semester senior year of college, in which case they go there and the center is inundated and they probably don't get the resources that they needed that they actually paid for. Mm-hmm. So. We're really hoping to see a, a system reform in colleges, and I really encourage people today to, to go back and utilize those resources because you paid for them. Right. Is, um, these, it's so interesting. All these little things have added up. The systems, the – I mean, I guess this is why they don't buy into government. This is maybe why they don't buy into religious systems to the same level as previous generations. They, they do. In a lot of ways, they, they feel like if you think about those being incentivized and, and all the coaching, right, they were yeah. very trusting. This is an incredibly trusting and optimistic generation. And all of a sudden, they're finding out, wow, it's not really as it was presented to me. And I, I can understand the anger and the bitterness, but I have to say, I also believe in them, right? They, they've One of the things about learning and being coached your whole life is that um, previous generations see coaching as a sign of weakness. Right, right. Like, right. Get coached. There was something wrong with you. This generation understands it's a path to greatness. And so what I believe is that they're going to go out and they're going to get coaching. And obviously we're seeing signs of that. And that's why we do what we do, because they know if I, okay, so I'm now learning things aren't the way they're supposed to be. But I also know if I can get the right information and the right support, I can turn things around. And that's what I believe in for them. And I, I know they are going to be an amazing generation as they take over. I mean, they make up 50% of our workforce now. Yeah. Yeah, well, and and they're and they're a beautiful generation in that they're more open minded, right? They're more, they're less likely to be racially driven or biased. And I mean, it's there's a lot of benefit to also being raised in the information age. And, you know, and that's the thing that um, we talk about helicopter parenting and all of that as a bad thing, but I don't know that it was. I'm just saying that it's given some of these results. Mm-hmm. But I also think about that nurturing and supportive and inclusionary and and how, like you said, they they're just. So, so much more um, understanding. I think that that's going to work to their advantage. They're just hitting a phase right now where that reality is setting in. And, and as we saw with those two young women, some take it one way and some take it the other way. What I think is happening right now is that they're developing grit, which is mental toughness. And I heard somebody refer to it almost as an acronym, guts, resilience, integrity, and tenacity. Hmm. And I love that because uh, these young people are going to get their grit. 
They're going to pick themselves up. They're going to be brave. They're going to keep pushing forward, and they're going to do what's right. And so, you know, as tough as it is right now, I think they're getting that grit, and they're going to do great things. That's amazing. What um, it's as we look at with our with our millennials, uh, th- this this division, I guess there really are two sides to it. You can be the victim of the millennial mindset, or you can kind of be, like you're saying, have the grit. What do you sense was the difference between these two women that you highlighted? Well, so here's the way I look at it is that they, everyone goes in, millennials go in hoping to be coached. Again, this idea of we've been coached our whole lives. In the working world, you need to earn coaching. And to do that, you have to do certain things and earn respect and earn trust because the employer is not going to invest in you and coach you and take you under their wing and mentor you if you're not showing these things. And so, you know, I wrote an article on Inc. about it, about the five reasons millennials aren't getting promoted. When you get promoted, you get coached, you get mentored. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the first things that we see is that they're a clock puncher. This one woman, really, you could tell that she was just going in, doing the job only when she had to and was leaving. Whereas the other woman was really putting in the extra time and energy beyond her normal job because she knew it would pay off later on. Um, second piece kind of hand in hand with that no initiative. She was really only doing her job, the one that was complaining and, and upset. Whereas the other gal said, hey, I'm going to take initiative. I'm going to shine on my own. Um, and then thirdly, and this is a big one, pointing out problems versus offering solutions. Right. So when you go in every day to work and you're telling the powers to be what's wrong with the place, but you're not offering any ideas of how to solve it or stepping up and trying to solve it yourself, that was a big delineator between the two of them. Um, and then the last two, one is slow, just being slow and, and setting weak deadlines, long deadlines. Um, we find with a lot of millennials that they want to get things perfect. And so they were also allowed to take extra time to do things. But that's not how it works in the working world. Right. There's a premium on timeliness yeah. and getting things done faster and, and a hustle. That's really the word, to, to hustle. Um, and then lastly, that ties to enthusiasm. Do you care about the place? Do you, are you proud of what they do? Are you displaying that attitude of, of being proud of working at that company? I mean, this company's paying you. They want to see that you're happy. And when you have that disenchanted attitude, which we saw in that, that first woman, um, she ended up getting fired, mm. right? And, that, and that's, that's the piece of it. So really looking at that delineation, if you can do these things early on in your career, you will stand out as a millennial and you will get that coaching. That is – that's it. It's, and it's such – it's such basic advice, right? It's yet it's it's so almost foreign sometimes to a lot of us. Well, we, and that's why we're, why we're trying to get it out there, right? Yeah. You're so right. I wish it's not rocket science. It is basic advice, but for whatever reason, it wasn't disseminated Mm-mm. to millennials, right? And so they're going into work, um, coming across as entitled and lazy and not caring. And that's not the case at all. It's just they weren't given these guidelines that they could really stand out. And I know they do want to stand out. And I will tell you the ones that do this, they stand out so fast because nobody else is, right? And then all of a sudden, they're getting promoted inside of a year. Let me tell you, number one complaint of corporate America right now is that we don't have enough talent. There's a massive talent shortage going on because there's only 46 million Gen Xers, my generation. There's 77 million millennials. And yet the millennials aren't ready for management. But I'll tell you something, companies are going to be promoting the rock stars. You're going to see a lot of millennials in their early 20s becoming managers because they chose to embrace this and and wanted to get ahead. But it really is. It's a shift, I guess. And and so as a parent of millennials, what what would you suggest I do to um, maybe reinform, recoach, reinvigorate the 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 exhausted millennial? Right. 
Well, so I think the first thing that, that is really good is to sit down and talk to them about the difference between external and internal motivation. Because external motivation is those rewards. I get paid, I get benefits, I get perks. And internal motivation is doing something because it impresses you. You care about it. Um, because the sooner a young person can tap into their internal motivation for work, the faster their career will go. We have seen it time and time again. Mm. So find that problem bigger than yourself that you care about and find companies that are working on that problem and, be, and work for those companies because that will drive you. Yeah. You'll want to get up and go to work every day. And, if, and that's one of the most simple pieces of advice we can give young people, but it's a massive transformation when they go to a, uh, from a work environment where they're not feeling tied and where they're not feeling like they're, they're having that to where they are. It's, it's a big, big difference. Second thing is help manage their expectations. There's been a lot of pressure put on this generation that they're supposed to change the world or they're supposed to be the next Mark Zuckerberg. Right? right. We tell them they can be anything they want to be, but that's like taking them to an ice cream parlor and saying, there's 365 flavors. You've got three seconds to pick one. <laughs> that's really intense, right? Yeah. So the other thing to do is scale it back, get them some coaching, some skills assessment, let them figure out what they're good at and what they're not good at. Because when they know their strengths and they know what problem they want to solve, now they can massively narrow down the options and make an informed choice about a career direction they want to go in. And that hasn't been done for them. Right. I mean, that's again, it's it, but it is it's slowing them down, getting the right vision and then and making it intr intrinsic. It's almost like some of the people I work with, they're so motivated on the intrinsic side that they almost don't want to do the other work. They they only <laughs> want to fulfill their mission. And yet sometimes you got to pay the piper first, right, in order to have the, the benefit of fulfilling the fully intrinsic mission. You absolutely do. And that's part of the reason I encourage people to find a company where the purpose is there because you are going to have to. Yeah. We call it paying dues and I, people cringe when they hear that, right? But it's not really paying dues. It goes back to that earlier conversation we had about um, being professionally immature. Like it or not, there's been a lot of things you haven't learned yet, just about basic day-to-day -day business and work. And if you can you know, put your time in and really get focused, you can close the gap on that pretty fast. But there's going to be a span there of a few years where you've got to get up to speed. Yeah. Now, is this what you're doing on your website, careerhmo.com? It is. It is. So we, we saw the trend of, of the need for career coaching. We also saw that it needed to be affordable. So the idea was if we could create the Netflix of career improvement on a subscription model and make it affordable and accessible to everyone, could that help people? And mm. so we tested the model and it, it was successful. And so it's really been designed with millennials in mind because we want to be their career coaches for a lifetime, not just help them find a job, but hey, you get in the job and you have that first conversation with a coworker or a boss and you're a little nervous. Who do you talk to? How yeah. do you get the answers about how to approach that conversation or how to plan for your promotion or, you know, how to deal with that first failure on the job? Uh, they need that resource consistently. And so that's why we built Career HMO. It's and a health maintenance organization. That is such a great uh, career HMO. That it, it's Again, parents should also be listening up thinking, oh, okay, maybe I could take my, my uh, millennial to Career HMO and help, you know, pay for their own uh, their own career pro you know coach 
Yeah, it's it's definite. Uh, you know, and we designed it. It's nine dollars a month, so it's really been built so that those millennials can do it for themselves. Yeah, it's brilliant. Right? So we, yeah, we want them to to get that help. They deserve it. And there's probably nothing more exciting than when we get emails every day saying, "I just got a job at my bucket list company." A bucket list company is a company that you identified as one of the top twenty places you want to work. And we teach all of them how to do that, and then how to network and connect with those companies so that they can get an interview. And it it's just the best feeling in the world because you know it. That very moment, that millennial has been changed forever. They now are totally empowered and understand how to approach their career. You bet, absolutely. Well, I think it's uh, I think it's a great resource, and again, a sign of the times where millennials can now go access the information the way they probably are used to accessing it as well. They are. It's all video based. It's so great, <laughs> JT O'Donnell. We appreciate you and your great work on that uh, Inc. magazine as well. Uh, article two: Emerging Millennial Mindsets in the Workplace. Thank you, JT, for being with us. Oh, thank you so much, Matt. You bet. We'll take a break, folks. Come back and uh, continue the discussion on the other side of the break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Help you understand understand better your millennials doing what we can here, folks. Making, uh, you know, making you live a little healthier, love a little stronger, and lead a healthier, happier life. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. everybody to the Matt Townsend show you know millennials you know those millennials they're just so lazy as I look at Ben yawning through the middle of my show they're not lazy folks they've, they've we're misunderstood misunderstood totally yep. and they were basically like monsters created to fell that's what I was thinking too so let me give you some other coaching tools, and this isn't just for millennials. This would be for some some ideas for how you can coach other people when they bring you their problem, right? Because it's easy. You know, you may have a friend that constantly comes and brings you all of their issues, and you need to fix this for me. Um, but if you're going to coach people, and this would work great with millennials, you know, in coaching them on their own uh, issues as well. But um, I'm going to give you just five basic keys, okay, as we go through this coaching corner. Uh, the first key is to know that the answers, any answer, or I call them a hook, a hook might be something that keeps somebody stuck. All of their answers, all of their hooks are in them, not you. So when somebody comes to ask me a, um, you know, a question, but it's involving them or their life or their uh, experience in the world when it's about them, the answers are in them, not me. And you got to realize that as a coach. And there's a lot of value to knowing that because if I understand the problems are in them, the issues are in them, then honestly, then I can uh, kind of make it more about them. I also don't have to be offended if they use or take my advice or not. Um, I also can know that. If I give a solution that doesn't work, it's because I probably didn't unhook the right issue in them. So I want you to be thinking about somebody that comes up to you, asks you a lot of questions, wants your advice, maybe somebody that doesn't seem to take it a lot. 
or or the people that maybe are around you wanting insight but don't necessarily ask for it. Know that their issues, their answers are in them. And I'm convinced that uh, that those issues are in them, and I I want them I want them to be responsible for the fact that this is your world. A lot of times I'll ask somebody a question, and they're like, "I don't know, I don't know the answer to that." Well, you must. I don't know is your fast answer that you're just telling me as a coach, but you're the only person that knows why you do what you do, right? I mean, I can guess why you do it, I can surmise, but. You're the one with all of the information. You're the one with all the data. So make sure when you coach somebody that the answers are inside of them, even if it's just coaching them to kick a ball in a goal. And if if they have the inability to do it, then that hook is stopping them, but that hook is inside of them. And the job of a really good coach is to get inside that person and help that person find out what their answers are. Um, one reason that that's important too is because in motivation theory, it would say that unless this person uh, – unless the answers are coming from this person, they're less likely to be motivated to actually do anything about it anyway. So turn it back on them and uh, let me show you how we do that. One way to do it is to use questions, right, to turn on some lights. So like, let's say a mother came in and, you know, I don't – my son, we, we were going to move him to a new school. I'm pretty sure it's, I mean, it's an important thing. I'm not sure he's going to like it, but I, I want to move him to this new school. I think it's better for him. And um, they might just right out of the chute say, what do you think? Well, I don't know. I don't know your son. I don't know everything about what's going on here. So be careful to not just jump on that answer. Well, yeah, I would totally move him. I was moved to a new school, and I was his same age, and I turned out great. Um, instead, use some questions, right? So, you know, just use some questions like, you know what? I don't I don't know what to do about moving your son yet, but, you know, it sounds like you're really considering it. Um, but before I answer this, can I ask you a few questions? Like, so what are your goals for your son and his situation? And try to help him – by just asking the question, what are your goals, it allows them to have to go evaluate their goals. Or, uh, you know, what what do you perceive the problems might be with moving him to this area, to this new school? What does your heart tell you about this decision? What does your mind tell you? You know, and which of those two do you trust more? Which answer do you trust more? Another question you could just simply ask is, why are you asking someone else's advice on this? Why are you not just making the decision yourself? But push on them, right? Because – and push with questions. And let these questions not be to trap them, not be to beat them up, not even just so you know how to answer this person. Ask the questions so that this person has to explore what they are doing, right? If the, if the issue is in them, then ask the questions that help them explore it. The more information we gather here, it's also going to do two things. It's going to give me more data, but it's probably going to lower their emotion about this decision. Anytime somebody brings me a big you know, bundle of emotion, I usually like to get them talking and sharing their feelings about the emotion. So – 
First step, understand their answers and hooks are in them, in them, not me. Second is use questions to turn the lights on. My goal is just to get information. Once I can figure out what their goals are with their son and what's the history of the situation and what are they feeling right now about it and why are you asking me, why aren't you asking someone else and what does your gut tell you, a lot of those might – they might just answer it themselves, right? Another thing I like to do is as they're talking is I reflect back what I hear them saying. I'll reflect back. So it sounds like you really like to have your child try another school, but you're afraid he'll lose friends if he goes to the new school. Is that what you're saying? And I just hold it up back to what they were to them so that they have to look at what they're saying. And the way I do that is I just basically paraphrase what they just told me. And then I say, so is that what you're saying? And then they have to agree or disagree. Well, yeah, that's – well, and it's it's not just like that. I also – I don't want to feel like I'm too demanding that I'm pushing my son this way. Now, the more they talk, I love it because the more information it gives me about them, but it also allows me to maybe look a little bit deeper at what their motives are, what's driving them, what their concerns are. If this mother, for example, keeps saying, I just don't want to make the decision for him. I just – I want I, – I don't want to make a mistake and I feel like I might be pushing him too hard. But then I'd go talk more about that. Man, it sounds like you feel like you're applying a lot of pressure about this decision. Tell me more about that and then let them explore that issue. Does that make sense? So as they're sharing their issues, the issue is usually never the real issue we're discussing. This isn't about school. This is about this mother's concerned about her son. She's concerned and she wants to make a change for her son. And she's also concerned that the change will create other problems like he will lose his friends or she's just being too demanding. So if you hold it up, don't agree with it, don't disagree with it, don't argue it. I don't even give other advice. I just say – I just kind of let them kind of sift through what they're thinking about. And by not taking a position, then they don't have to like, you know, retract into their position and then we don't have to debate about it. Keep it very open so we can keep this issue moving until we find out what's going on. Then another rule I like to use is I point out their inconsistencies. So it sounds like you're worried about your son and, you know, and his grades and yet you also don't want to feel like you're making the decision for your son. Is that what you're is that what you're feeling? This that's a little bit of an inconsistency, right? You want him to move on and you're concerned it's not a great idea. Point out the inconsistencies. What I find many times it's the inconsistencies in our thinking that come out in a conversation and if we can hold it up, not call them on it. Oh, it sounds like this is what's really going on. You don't need to be the pop psychologist, just I'm noticing that you you really feel like you're pushing your kid too hard. And you also really feel strongly that he needs to move on. Talk to me about that. And then if I can get them to be honest a little bit more about the inconsistency, that's where I see a lot of truth come out when I'm coaching couples, when I'm working with people. Um, it's It's pretty interesting stuff. And so – Point out those inconsistencies. And then last and certainly not least, be cautious about giving advice, right? Be cautious about giving advice. And one reason I say that is because um, 
people take your advice, right? So if you give advice, people are going to take it. That's one of the weirdest things I learned being a, kind of a radio TV personality is people actually take your advice. Be super careful offering it. The other reason I want you to be super careful offering advice is because um, they also need people to blame. So if they don't like your advice or if your advice backfires, you're the one that gave it. So they will hold you accountable to it, right? Five basic, easy coaching steps. Know your answers and hooks are in the people you're talking to, not you. Use questions to turn on some lights. Reflect back what you hear them saying. Point out their inconsistencies, cautiously, of course. And be careful giving advice, folks. Be careful. I've seen people advise uh, a divorce because their friend gave them that advice. Be careful the advice you give anybody, um, especially if you haven't done the other steps before it. Stick with us, folks, helping you live longer and love stronger. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Terry just came in with pressing, breaking news. Matt, you you have said before you are a fan of Chick-fil-A. I like me some Chick-fil-A. I am the healthiest human ever known to man. And their potato fries are to die for. Chick-fil-A is shunning a not-so-nutritious ingredient. Not the Chick-fil-A sauce, which boasts 140 calories a serving, Ugh. 13 grams of fat, yes, I 120 milligrams of, sh- of uh, salt. Instead, it's their iceberg lettuce. What? We have a mandate. Never use iceberg lettuce, the restaurant vice president of menu strategy and development tells Business Insider. It's at the bottom of the salad food chain, he adds. There's no nutritional value in iceberg lettuce. That's actually not true. Iceberg lettuce contains vitamin A and K. But other leafy vegetables, like kale, are more more nutritious. Yeah. So while there's no official ban in place at Chick-fil-A over iceberg lettuce, you could see other, other, uh, like romaine or kale, could be on the menu. No kale. For your your sandwiches. No kale can be on the menu. They're moving towards superfoods. They have a salad of broccolini, kale, sour cherries. Stop it. Are you serious? Yeah. So they might m- remove iceberg lettuce, and I you may they already see, did, and they just put a pickle on. You'll see kale or maybe uh, a romaine type <laughs> lettuce because they're more nutritional for you. No. Do you like the iceberg lettuce? You like your your fluff sure. of water? I don't. Do you care? I don't. I just want the Chick Fil A. Yeah. All I want. Yeah. The rest of it's just you know with some pickles dressing. on it. Mm. So they're going to change your lettuce part, possibly. Listen. A nice kale chicken sandwich. Chick. Listen to me. Oh, don't kale. do it. It's gross. Don't don't mess it up with kale. <laughs> I know it's a superfood, whatever on earth that means. But you've got a super sandwich right now, even if it has iceberg lettuce on it. Don't do it. We'll be right back. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Ah, technology. Yes, I love technology. (laughs) Uh, A little Napoleon Dynamite there. Um, I love technology. And yet... 
it's supposed to, you know, ideally increase some connectivity, right? These phones, all the technology should be helping us get closer with those we love. So in the Coach's Corner today, I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about how we can enable technology in our lives without disabling the family. And if the goal is connectivity, connectivity is defined like this. It's the state or quality of being connected, the ability to link and to communicate with others. So it doesn't just mean we get a good Wi-Fi signal. That That's great. That's probably the easy side of connectivity. The hard side is when you want to connect humans and make sure that we understand those around us and make sure that we listen and we pay attention. And so uh, let me give you some tools that might help your family in the age of technology and connectivity to connect a little bit more effectively and how to manage your technology use. One of the first principles and rules is Look look at your technology as a magnifying lens, not the boogeyman, right? Not the evil, dangerous, you know, cancer plague that is destroying our youth. Sure, it's impacting our kids a lot. But when I say it's a magnifying lens, technology really is your friend. It's not your enemy. Many would love to just sit there and blame technology for all of the problems in their lives, for the fact that their children are distant, for the fact that their kids don't get good grades, the fact that they're looking at stuff online that they shouldn't be seeing, for their overeating because they sit in front of TV or their, their obesity because they never exercise. But another way to look at technology is not just to blame it for everything, but maybe look at it as a magnifying lens. Meaning what happens with technology is it's going to magnify your natural tendencies anyway. If if you have a tendency to get a little lazy and not exercise, having technology and cable TV and Wi-Fi and Netflix is probably only going to magnify your inherent weakness. It does with me. If I love to just escape in a movie – then the technology is going to, you know, shine a light on that and grow and, and, and grow it and, and embolden it. So it's not necessarily the cause of your problems, but it is magnifying and exposing your biggest weaknesses. If you have a self-esteem weakness and getting online on Facebook, Facebook may not just be driving and causing your self-esteem problems as you look at the neighbors who are all doing so much better than you. It's just magnifying the fact that you have kind of a natural inclination to have lower self-esteem. And that's how you use it to magnify the weakness. So make sure you're pointing that out and and focus as a family on and be real. Like Dr. Karens was saying, really look at yourself and ask, what am I doing with my technology that's that's harming me? And was the, is that not a problem if I didn't have the technology? Would I not naturally just find my way to waste that time anyway? So think of magnifying lens as as, as – think of technology as a magnifying lens, not as the boogeyman. Another rule, get better, not busy. One of the things that um, we we spend a lot of time doing with our technology is we try to use it to just get more done. And the sad thing about getting more done is many times we spend all day doing things that we didn't need to do, that weren't even important to do. 
So instead of just using your your tools and your devices to get a lot more done, let's make sure we're actually improving. Right? Let's make sure we're actually getting better. Make sure that you actually are changing and improving, not just being entertained. One of my children um, is on his phone constantly. And we sit there and we have discussions in our house. And out of nowhere, he pulls statistics. He pulls information. He pulls very relevant lessons and, and data that I had never known. And I ask him where he gets it. And he's like, oh, I saw that on YouTube. He actually uses YouTube to go learn. He knows so much, but he's learned it on YouTube. And, uh, you know, it used to be we would learn that in school. He knows so much. Uh, he can. He just sits there, yeah, well, the sun is this far from the, the earth and the earth is this far from. And he's just learned it on YouTube. It's not enough to just use the technology to keep us entertained and busy. Let's – and even just – chit-chatting and talking or finding the next great video that's moving and motivational. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But there's also a point that you you ought to be able to not have to go to your phone to escape, but instead go now implement what you're learning. Like the question I always ask uh, the people and the couples I work with, what's one thing right now, if you did it right now, would positively impact your life? What's one thing? Can you think of one thing? Let's say you've even, you've even thought about doing it for years. What's, what's that one thing? Well, look, you already know. There's something you can go do right now. Why aren't we doing that? I don't know. I'm busy. Well, you're not busy on Netflix. So what we might want to do is when we have that one thing, if we don't know how to do it, we don't know how to do it effectively, use your technology to go get ideas on how to do the one thing that you know you need to go do. Use your technology to be an alarm to get you up earlier to go do that one thing. Make sense? The goal, getting better, not just staying busy. The goal of technology is to help advance us as humans, make us more human, more humane, not just more busy. Another rule, maximize the micro moments. Research from Dr. Barbara Fredrickson, author of Love uh, 2.0, Creating Happiness and Health in Moments of Connection. She describes what she calls the power of the micro connections or moments of connection that are so important to our communication. Fredrickson's research suggests that love of another is not some constant, all-encompassing emotion we feel throughout the day, but instead love is a small micro-moment where we share a caring feeling or emotion. So when you think you love your family, loving of a family is not that's, – that's, that concept is not a constant concept because you're not constantly thinking about loving your family. That that love would be made up of micro moments throughout the day where in a loving way for a short period of time, you are connecting in and serving and taking care of your family. She argues it's the micro moments really that are the major drivers of health and can dramatically improve your use of technology. So why not use our technology to create more micro moments. Text your son, hey, do you want to go on a walk today? My son's on campus here at BYU. I'm asking him, do you want to go on a walk today? Micro moment. Hey, how, would, how did that test go? Micro moment. 
What did your friends say about whatever? Micro moments. So think of your life not just as big events. Well, we took our kids to Disneyland. That's so great. It might be better to have days full of micro moments, just little moments here and there where you express your love, you show your love, you care. And last but not least, we need to power up our will, our willpower, right? So the final area we need to improve if we want to make our technology our servant, not our master, is we're going to have to start to to have some more willpower. And the fastest way I've ever found to grow willpower is to have some rules, some won't power, some things we just won't do. So if you want your kids to have more and more willpower with their phones, they need more rules. It sounds horrible, but the rules allow them to exercise their will and turn off the phone or put the phones away, right? Turn off the TV. And the more they have to exercise turning off the TV when they don't want to, the willpower will grow. It's, you know, it's the ability to do something you don't want to do, but you do it because you have a higher need, higher purpose. And willpower, it's not just something we just talk about. It's something we can actually do. You could take a, have a regular technology fast where you could say every Sunday from morning till 5 o'clock at night, no technology. You can have a phone time when all the phones are turned off and turned in. In our house, we don't want the phones up in our kids' rooms. You might have a book time when only books can be uh, in the house, where we're only reading books. We're not on our phones. You could have exercise times where maybe once in a while you go exercise as a family. You go play tennis as a family. You go do an activity as a family, and we put the phones away. Spend some time writing letters, visiting people, goal-setting. But the simple rule is let's spend more time exercising will. And when you do that, they'll learn to power up. So the four rules, very basically, to help us connect better without destroying the family. Think magnifying lens, not boogeyman. Get better, not busy. Maximize the micro moments and power up your will. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, what happened to my keys? Have you ever asked that question, like, today? Why is this room such a mess? What time was my appointment again? These are all questions that we ask ourselves at least once a day. Imagine not having to worry about any of these things. An organized life enables you to have more time, less aggravation, better health, and to get more done. Our next guest, Regina Leeds, author of One Year to an Organized Life, She's online with us uh, this morning to help us understand some tips on living a more organized life. Regina Leeds, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Oh, thank you so much. Good to have you on the show. And is it your birthday, young lady? Yes, it is. Happy (laughs) birthday to you. Thank you, Matt. That is so great. This is our little uh, happy birthday song because we can't afford the rights to the real song. So, Regina, it's your birthday, and you're on. What, what have you got planned today? Anything fun? 
I do. I have I have another interview after this, and believe it or not, those are the two. Those are like gifts to me from the universe because I love to do this. Do you? Good. And then I'm having lunch with some friends, and then dinner with some other friends. Holy it's cow! Be an eating day. I that's know, right. It's an eating day. <laughs> that's that's the way. Every day should be an eating day, Regina. <laughs> what? Uh, it's interesting because you've probably. Uh, got a, a great life. I, I, I just imagine you're sitting in this like, pr- cr- you know, this pristine house. Everything's clean. Everything has its place. Do you have one? Do you have anything on the floor right now, Regina? My dog. Okay, <laughs> that's where the dog belongs. Uh, any socks? No, no. I really do practice what I. That's treat. great. I, I'm I'm not the shoemaker with holes in my children's shoes. <laughs> Good. Well, no, but it it really is. This is something I think we need because this getting organized. It really is. There's something that's calming about it that just that helps calm the mind, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, uh, there's a belief. Uh, uh, as within, so without. So mm. if you've got a storm in your mind, you're going to have a storm in your environment. And it, it also works the other way, as without, so within. So if you if you are in mental chaos, if you start to calm the exterior, then you start to calm yourself down. And that's, um, that's a very sweet way to live. I mean, it's not that I never have an upset. It's just that I don't have upsets like where are my keys Mm -hmm. and why am I late for that appointment? I just have expunged those from my life. Well, that are fixable and predictable. I mean, why on earth do we need to complicate our lives with, with looking for our keys? But you know, Matt, wow, that's a, that's a bingo response because uh, we unconsciously do that because there are things that we don't want to face and we don't want to do, and we don't want to be responsible for. And, um, you know, we can look very busy and very noble if we're running around. I don't know why I can't find my keys. I don't know why I, I just couldn't get this report ready. I don't know why this or that, you know, and uh, everybody can relate to it. And we just don't realize that, oh, oh, wait, I may be creating this to avoid other things. So that's that's one of the things to take into account. And, of course, it doesn't have to be complicated and psychological. It could simply be that you grow up in a household with one or two parents who didn't have a clue about how to be organized. Mm-hmm. And it's a skill. So if you didn't have anybody to teach you, it's like wondering why you don't play the piano if you never had a piano or a <laughs> lesson. Well, right. you know, you didn't have the opportunity. So you can always learn how to get organized. And, and you do it. Uh, I mean, there's there's other organizers out there and, and people that try to teach how to find an organized life. But you, you do it, it seems like, in a different way. You have a different approach. Well, I like to take all of you into account. I like to say that what I'm doing is holistic. So, for instance, I don't know of any other organizer who talks about how to prepare for an organizing project. You know, it's it's generally not something you're excited about doing. Right. It's, so, so that adds to it. But it's going to take um, a block of time, and it's going to take some emotional and physical energy. So you, how are you going to do that? You're going to be using your body. So you've got to prep your body. You've got to have a good meal before you start. You want to have nice, nice, healthy snacks on hand, and you certainly want to stay hydrated so you can have water um, at easy reach so you can keep going. And you'd be surprised that those things keep your blood sugar raised. And then what's the engine that runs the organizing train? Decisions. Yeah, the brain. And there is such a thing as decision fatigue. So if you're 
if you keep replenishing the physical, then it is easier to make uh, decisions and to keep going. So I talk about that. And then it's, I think that everybody was born for a purpose, and it's going to be easier to accomplish your purpose if you're not looking yeah. for those famous keys or stepping over piles. So I have a higher purpose for you to get all this done, not just, you know, an afternoon where you can't see your friends and you have to stay home and take care of the XYZ piles and, oh, boy, poor me, I really hate this. You, you can learn to see it as creative and fun. No, oh, I love that. And and you, you even kind of met it out in a in a dose. So it's like it's going to take a year to do this. So you don't have to do it all today. Let's just do this little part today and let's do this part next week and kind of week by week, really, month by month. You know, Matt, I, I chose the format of the year and, and no, I don't think there's anybody who's literally going to spend a year because very few people have everything that I mentioned in the book. I just covered everything in a life. So, for instance, you might not be taking a trip this year, so you would only have to read that chapter. Right. Most people aren't moving in a year, so you have the whole month of August free. Free. Um, yeah. You might have certain areas of the home under control and just have to do others. You might not have a basement or garage. An attic. So everything is covered, but it might not be everything you have to cover. Mm -hmm. And I also build downtime in. You know, I build it on a four week month, and every 13 weeks you have that extra week. So there's always time for you to catch up, and there's a lot of planning involved. I don't want you to just race into a room and, you know, there's this new, uh, well, it isn't new. There are actually a lot of organizers who suggested, but uh, Marie Kondo's made it very famous, that you take everything from a category, like your clothing, and make a pile on the floor. And I just can't imagine any worse advice on planet Earth. It's, I just can't <laughs> imagine doing that. I think it's disrespectful to your clothes. I think if you get interrupted, you're in a pickle. <laughs> yeah, right. And I think uh, a lot of the things you may decide you want to keep are now going to be on the bottom of that pile and they're going to be wrinkled. So I ask you to make a plan before you start doing the physical work. You know, what do you, for instance, in your bedroom, what do you like about your bedroom? What needs to be changed? Um, always have, it's like going on a trip with or without a map. If I leave Los Angeles for New York, I can get there without a map. But if I plan my journey, it, you know, again, I might actually have a good time. Yeah, you can change. Yeah, and know when to rest and also know what parts of the country you want to see. I mean, really, it makes sense, right? How did you get started into all of this? I mean, what makes somebody decide, I'm going to write a book on being organized? (laughs) Well, it was all serendipity because I, I, uh, well, first of all, I was raised by the original organizer, and that was my mother, who a thousand times a day said to me, Regina, there is a place for everything, and everything (laughs) must be in its place, so the next time you need it or want it, you'll be able to find it. My mother lived by that principle, and it never occurred to me that I would be teaching that to other people, because that's the crux of an organized life. Um, So I was always organized, and uh, I was, the first part of my life, I was an actress, and I was working on a on a film, and Jonathan Winters said to me one day, he said, Regina, he said, you have to make your neuroses pay. I'm crazy, and I make a million dollars a year because of it. And there you go. I literally thought about that for 10 years, and I thought, well, what am I neurotic about that anybody would pay me for? And when, 
when and then one day I could, I remember the moment that when it came to me that oh my gosh I could say I'm neurotically organized so I can teach other people, and at that time it was 27 years ago there I think there were three books there, there nobody knew what a professional organizer was, and I I had a friend who was getting ready for a test to enter the the uh, uh, become a professional makeup artist in the industry and there's a big test you have to take and I said let me see if I can organize you I can organize myself but if I can't do it for other people then then this isn't my answer and um, I organized her and I've never advertised I've just had clients that um, I've always been word of mouth hmm. which I like because then I know where I'm going right right <laughs> in somebody's home um, but uh then 10 years later, I decided to move out of acting and just do organizing. And uh, I thought, I'm going to write one book because I think differently about organizing. I see it from the psychological and spiritual aspects that nobody at that time was adding into the mix. So I wrote a book and nobody understood what the hell I was talking <laughs> about. And I, I self-published. I sold 1,500 copies, I got a book contract, and then I've just written my 10th book. I've never looked back. I just keep getting asked for the next one and the next one, and I write different aspects of organizing. Um, and that's, that's how it happened. It was, it was sort of, it's sort of like the way Joseph Campbell promises you it will be. If you follow your bliss, the road beckons and the doors open, and it wasn't anything that I planned. Hmm. Isn't that? I mean, again, it's it just it seems like the more natural way. It just appears, and there it is. Yes. Yeah. Well, you see, then I was doing what I felt I was born to do, and and acting, and the fact that as an actress I had been in therapy to be a better actress. All of these things dovetailed together because, as an actress, when I give teach a seminar, I'm very at home on stage. I have a wonderful time. Um, having been in therapy, in therapy to be a better actress, I found that that enabled me to understand my clients mm -hmm. who usually feel tremendous fear and shame just for the fact they had to call me in and that they haven't done this for themselves. And so, you know, I can, through conversation, through fun, I don't sit down and do a therapy session with you. We just have a good time. But I can help you usually find what is that, that we have to unlock and let go of. Yeah, you, I love it. You know, a, a client met me at the door one day and she said, oh, I don't think we can work together today. I think I've made a terrible mistake calling you. Oh. <laughs> she said, really? Why? She said, well, I saw my brother yesterday and I told him what I was going to be doing today. And he said to me, don't bother. We weren't born with the organizing gene. <laughs> yeah, we're not <laughs> organizers. Said, oh, Regina. That's great. Yeah, I said, nobody is. Uh, sure, it's easier for some people than others. But if I played the piano by ear, that wouldn't mean I didn't have to take lessons. That's right. You, st you, you still got to learn how to do it. And um, we'll have more. Regina, stick with us. We're going to continue this discussion, and we're going to start to learn. Where do we begin to uh, organize our minds, our lives, our hearts? And... Um, and be able to find the peace that Regina's been talking about. Stick with us. More with Regina Leeds and her book, One Year to an Organized Life, right after the break.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Honored to have Regina Leeds on the phone. Uh, she is the New York Times bestselling author and uh, has written more than nine books. If you go to her website, reginaleads.com, you can find out more about all of her different uh, organizing tips, her blog as well. The book we're talking about today is One Year to an Organized Life from Your Closets to Your Finances, the week-by-week guide to getting completely organized for good. Regina Leeds, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back. Thank you so much. To me, this is uh, so needed, I think, for all of us. Talk to us about uh, where we get started. How and what what should we do to just the average Joe out there to get started to organize our lives? Well, the first thing you have to remember is that getting organized is a skill. And you you learn it, and then you can apply it everywhere. And by that, I mean if, if you don't have a mo- big emotional attachments to clothing, that's a good place to begin. But... I think it took me about three years to realize, wait a minute, no matter where I am in the house or an office, I'm doing the same three steps. So everything is the same. What changes are the things that I hold in my hand. Hmm. And so it's important to understand that once you dive in and learn the basic principles, you're just reapplying them wherever they need to be applied. You don't have to learn kitchen organizing or bathroom organizing or how to set up a file system. It's really all the same. So... There are five things I say you need to know to get started. And the first is a principle. And it's a principle that you're going to repeat to yourself like a mantra every time you feel overwhelmed, want to run out of the room and say, oh, forget about it. I don't (laughs) have to do this. And that is the whole of anything is overwhelming. So you're going to break things down into small, manageable chunks. You walk into your office. Oh, my gosh, this is too much. I can't do this. No, you're not doing your whole office. You're, You're just going to do your desk. And you're not even doing your whole desk. You're just going to do this pile of papers on the left-hand side. And in that pile of papers, you're only going to do maybe a top half inch at a time. And from that half inch, you're going to go one paper at a time, making decisions. You're going to build steam and confidence as you go. So remember, when you're overwhelmed, stop and breathe and say, i got to break this down and work smaller. Yeah. That is a great – and that is a principle. Universal. That will work everywhere in life and world everywhere. Oh, yes, it will work everywhere in life, yes. The, the second thing is, are, are actually three steps. Uh, so it's two, three, and four. But I have them grouped together, and I call them the magic formula because you can use this for anything, any part of your life. The first thing I have to do is eliminate. I need to remove from the space, from the project, from my life, what I don't need, don't want, don't no longer use, And it is the most creative of the three steps because you could toss, you could recycle, you could find somebody who needs it, you could donate to a charity and get a tax deduction, you can give it to a relative or a friend. This is the the creative, this should be the fun step. As I'm working that, every time I make a decision to keep something, I want to start creating categories. And categories are easiest to see in the closet just because we all have clothes. So shoes are together. Blouses are together. Jewelry is together. Lingerie is together. You know what I mean? Like all suits are together. So you keep brethren. All related items Mm. are together. Because whether those categories are in your closet or your pantry or um, you're running a home-based business and you sell product, wherever those categories are, 
your inventory is making you powerful. You always know what you need. You know when you're running out. You don't waste money. You're in the store. I think I need, you know, another can of chicken soup, and then you get home and find you have 50. So categories make you strong and Hmm. powerful. And that's part of the eliminating process. So as I'm eliminating, I'm kind of, I'm putting them into their categories. Well, you're you're eliminating and ca- you're eliminating what you don't need, and at the same time, you're deciding what you do yeah, need. Yeah, and what you do need goes into a category. Okay, great. So it's flip sides of the same coin. Yep. And then the last step is you get organized, and that's when. Now, how can I make this uh, uh, category beautiful to look at? Because every time I come to it, I want to be happy that I'm there. It has to be completely functional because physical beauty without function is meaningless. And then it has to be easy to maintain based on who you are and how you think. And it's at that point that you need someone like me or a, a book like some like one that I've written. Where that's where you learn the tips and the tricks and what products would be best and you know, how do I how this is where this is the modus operandi. This is the skill set you have to learn. Hmm. So eliminate, categorize, organize, and you're on your way. And and, and then the, this 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 is interesting to me. I'm just thinking because there's also this is about technology. You could use these exact same principles managing your uh, your inbox on your email as well. You can use it for anything. Everywhere, Matt. The the epilogue to in one year to an organized life. What I say is. You've spent a year practicing skills in physical form. You've been working with stuff. But now the, the skill set is a part of you. And I tell how I used it. Uh, July, I will be a 14-year cancer survivor. Mm. And I talk about how I use those very skills, eliminate, categorize, organize, don't get overwhelmed by the whole, and the last step is maintenance. Um, how I use those to work my way through mm. what I had to do, which was completely overwhelming. Yeah. And, uh, and so it can be for projects at work. It can be for, you know, my kids are driving me crazy. Wait, this is overwhelming. How can I break the, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, there is no place where it won't help you. And it's, and again, and, and it's holistic, it's healing, right? I can imagine if somebody, I just think of like my desk uh, at home, if I could go through this process, how healing it would be at the end to have a functional, beautiful workspace that now is 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 safe and I can have people in there and I feel whole. Yes, it opens up your life in many ways. And it also, now you have to confront if you have a little BS going on about, well, you know, I'd love to do that, but I have to get organized or, oh, yeah, I right. have to do that, but I know I have to find my keys. Well, all of that is gone. So now you're free uh, to make an adult decision and say, you know what? I don't want to do this. Oh, I can't do this, whatever, rather than saying I would love to, but I have to dot, dot, dot. You're, yeah. you're, you're free of that. It's really, um, I think it's wonderful. And stuff, you know, Matt, stuff is noisy. Yeah. I look at some pictures. I love design. Oh, my goodness. I love design. And design is part of organizing. Um, And sometimes I look at a room or an area that's been put together, and I think, I couldn't sit there for five minutes. There's too much going on. Stuff on every, you know, if you, when you're doing your desk, for instance, when one is doing one's desk, be careful that you don't have too many pictures or too many plans. 
And also with the pictures, you know, you can have one of those rotating programs so your computer's always popping up with surprise photos. Mm-hmm. Because what I see most often, and it's very sweet, I'll look at the client's desk and I'll say, oh, is this your son? Is this your daughter? And I see a little person, like five, six years old, and then I find out that that, that is indeed their child and they just graduated from college or... <laughs> They're married and have children. And so just be very careful in every way that you don't freeze frame your life. I mean, and that um, is it because, right, we, we it's almost like we're afraid to get rid of the stuff. If If somebody out there really has a harder time letting go of stuff or eliminating stuff, uh, what what should we – what would you suggest for them? I don't mean to promote the book, but I have in the book. No, that's book, great. I have a lot of questions you can ask yourself because it's a com- it's complex. I mean, one of the things, uh, for instance, uh, I I had a mom. Uh, her son was thirteen, and when I met her, she was uh, fifty four or fifty five. And in her in her closet, she had uh, her favorite dress from when she was pregnant. And I said, you know, let's make a choice to do something creative with this because you're not going to wear it again. <laughs> Let's either give it to a charity so that somebody who can't afford a beautiful dress like this while she's pregnant can have it. Or if you, if you don't want to let it go, let's get a shadow box and put a picture of you in this dress and then pin a swatch of fabric from the dress and a couple other mementos uh, from that time period. Now I have a conversation piece. Now I have a part of my past that I can look at every day rather than just having a dress stuck in a closet. Yeah. Um, so you want to talk yourself through the process of what attaches you to this thing. I had a, a mom, uh, I'll never forget, uh, she happened to be, I remember, she was 61 when I worked with her, and she lived in tremendous regret that she had given away the yellow rain slickers her sons wore mm. when they were little guys and they lived a year abroad. And... There's no point for that regret because even if you have the yellow slickers, even if you have every single item that they wore at that time, it will not take you back to that time. So, you know, whether it's uh, answering the journal, I have journal questions for each area of the home so you can unhook yourself from what attaches you. I, I, you know, the popular question now is, does it spark joy? And if it doesn't, bingo, it's gone. Hmm. That to me is way too simplistic. I think we're more complex human beings than asking one simple question. So I think it's, it's an archaeological dig into your own psyche. And you can learn a lot about yourself. Are you a fear-based person? You know, people who say about everything, oh, no, I might need that one. Yeah, I might. I'm, I, that's that's my favorite line. I might need that one. Day. Well, Regina, we got to go, but I love the book, uh, and I love the idea. One year to an organized life. Everybody go look it up. One year to an organized life, and we'll have Regina back to talk about other topics like organized work life, organized financial life, and organized life with a baby, folks. The principles, they apply everywhere. And uh, the conversations are essential. Uh, that's, I think, a big key to the healing. Um, more, um, We'll have Regina back. And uh, go look up her website, reginaleads.com. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you lead healthier, happier lives. Stick with us, folks. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. 
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. As we talk about uh, positive psychology and uh, that happiness movement that Daniel was talking about, it really is... Uh, to me, I I love it as a as a process, as an approach to life. It makes sense how we get there. We do need to pay attention and make sure that uh, we're not just telling people that they they just got to hunker down and suck it up and and be happy. Um, because again, there are certain cultures and certain parts of our country, certain parts of our um, of our world that they still don't have the same opportunities, right, as others. And so um, to be positive when your sister was just abducted into a sex trade, uh, you know, underground, you know, problem, it's not enough to just say, just be happy. But that's not usually what the happiness uh, kind of movement is about. It's more about the fact that you can wait forever to be successful and it won't make you happy. A lot of us think success breeds happiness. Grades makes you ha- make you happier. Uh, being a successful business operator makes you happy. And so we think perfection and getting a lot of things accomplished and done makes us happy. And we've trained that into our children. We've trained it into our brains, our minds that accomplishment is happiness uh, and um, uh, you know, control is happiness. And in reality, what you'll find out in all of the research on happiness is it's it's not quite that way. Usually what the key is, is happy people that find the method to find happiness in their existing life, those people tend to be successful. It's not that success breeds the happy. It's that happy people breed success. And that's some of the latest research on the subject. Um, so a couple of rules. I call them the ABCs of happiness, and they're very basic ideas. But the A of happiness is to appreciate today. We need to appreciate what is happening with us right now. Appreciate your life right now. Happier, happier people appreciate what's going on in their life. They actually appreciate what they're good at, and they're very they're very tuned in to what they do well. They appreciate their strengths. They understand what their expertise is and what they know how to do. And they know their character strengths. They know their values and their beliefs. They also appreciate others, and they see what others are doing. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Happy people um, appreciate the fact that others are part of their life, part of their team, and they can see the good in what's happening and happier people appreciate the positive, not just that everything is positive, but they see the good that is happening daily. And um, the ability to see the good every day tends to change you, right? We can leverage good things. If, if we have more of a negative mindset, then all we tend to do is pick up all the negative. And um, a, a lot of pessimists would say, well, yeah, well, that's the best way to be, right? Then you're not going to be taken advantage of. Yeah, but not being taken advantage of does not make you happy. It also does not make you a great business person to play every interaction as, as a way that, to make sure you're not going to get harmed. 
at some point you have to actually go reaching for the other things, the other benefits. So uh, the A's are to appreciate what is. Um, the B's of life uh, are really about believing in tomorrow. Happier people have a strong belief about what their future looks like. And they, they want to be a part of their future and they want – and they know what their future should look like. They have a strong belief, a strong hope in what they can accomplish and do um, tomorrow. And uh, that means they have a strong connection to their purpose in life. They, they have a mission. They understand what life is. They're trying to, to actually um, – to, to be able to be in their lives in, in a more active way and to fulfill their mission and their purpose and their passion and they're connected to it. And really that to me is one of the, the greatest, I think, benefits of this whole uh, happiness movement is to know that you have a life that's pretty powerful and if you can believe in it, uh, in tomorrow being a good thing, it's awesome. In fact, they actually define happiness as an experience of positive emotion. It's pet pleasure combined with a deeper feeling of meaning and purpose. So ask yourself, do you have more meaning in your life? Do you have more purpose in your life? Because if so, you're probably going to be happier. And the C's of happiness are simply to connect deeply with others. Happy people connect more deeply with other people, which a couple things that means is they are intentionally not just zoning out. They don't just numb themselves with media, with technology, with Netflix. So they turn off their numbing. And uh, they don't just try to medicate themselves away. They don't drink themselves into oblivion. They don't. Uh, they don't. They don't just phase out every night and turn off every night. And they also connect deeply with other people, which is hard for many because they they don't want to be vulnerable. And so we, these are the things we've got to work on: appreciating what is, believing in what will be, and connecting along the way. ABCs of happiness. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Whether we're talking about global warming, whether we're talking about you know international politics or famine or whatever is going on in the world, as we just learned, the more information that we can gather and garner, the better, right? But instead, uh, a lot of us feel very comfortable with minimal information and then maximal uh, uh, beliefs and um and argumentation and all of these other things that go along with what complicate our lives, what complicate our relationships. Isn't it crazy that many times when we have – when we are the least informed, we feel the very most confident? I uh, talked the other day about Fortnite, a video game. All the kids are out there playing and um, a lot of parents don't like it. They just don't like it. And if you ask them why, then it's usually, well, my kids like it and they're spending too much time on it. And then I just ask, have you ever played it with them? Have you ever gone to see what they're doing? When the, well, I mean, I've walked by, yeah, and it's just shooting people. They're just shooting people. Have you ever watched a game fully all the way through? Have you ever seen what is going on? No, no. So we have all of this fear, but we're not informed. And uh, it, this this also becomes a big part of our relationships, right? Because... The reality is none of us in our in our interactions with others, none of us have all of the data. But boy, we sure act as if we do, don't we? We we need to in our conversations assume we don't know. And even if you know, don't assume you understand everything about why that person would drive that way, why that person would say such a rude thing, 
why that person would would be completely frustrated and and angry about something. I um, we had a, a friend when we were raising our family and younger that wouldn't would not absolutely would not let their child sleep over anywhere. Just wouldn't. Just stuff can happen. They just horrible. Wouldn't let it happen. No. I mean, and, and to a point where it was it was hard for the for the girl because this young girl was all of her friends were sleeping over. They all got to do it, so she'd get to go stay there until, you know, late, and then she'd have to go home with her parents. And it makes sense, right? And uh, a lot of other parents were frustrated, like, just, like, what, you don't trust us? You don't think we're, you think we're going to do something to your daughter? Is that what this is about? It's not. But come to find out, the girl had been, the mother had been abused as a child at a sleepover. And it's still part of her mindset. It hurts. It it hurts bad. And the minute you understand that that's what the mother went through, you understand why she protects her daughter that way. It makes it understandable. These things don't always make things right or wrong, whatever that is, but it does make it understandable. So if you want more power with people – Try to understand them more. Assume that you don't have the full story. Assume that there's more going on upstream that is maybe coming into this uh, the pool of water that you're dealing with, the pool or the situation that you have to engage in. Don't assume you know. Don't assume you're informed. In fact, the more confusing the situation is, the more likely it is that you don't know what's going on. So watch it. Pay attention to it. Slow down the conversation, uh, just like we were just learning uh, from Anna Rosling Ronenland. Slow down the the interpretation. We don't need to jump to conclusions. We don't need to um, we don't need to make something a bigger problem than it is. So just remember, none of us have all the data, and if you don't have the data, don't just quickly make it up. Go try to figure it out. Go try to gather more data. And then see if it doesn't improve your condition. Anyway, just a little idea. We all need more understanding regardless, right? Not easy, this life, but uh, totally worth it and even worth it with people that drive us crazy. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Could you ever be accused of being a clingy partner? Are you just too unwilling to let go? of your loved one, your your significant other, your, uh, you know, your companion for life. You just too clingy. There really is, uh, there, there's, there is a, an issue where some of us in our relationships, when we have kind of an unsafe attachment, we might end up being what's called too anxiously attached, right? Where we are constantly wondering where our partner is, why are you here, why aren't you here, why aren't you, uh, you know, why haven't you called me? And and we become a little too needy, a little too stuck uh, on on each other. Now, right, it's good to it's good to like each other, right? It's good to want to be with each other. Just my little idea, my little coach's corner. Jeff, Jeff, hey Jeff, wake up, we got a show to do, let's go. Mm-hmm. Huh? Oh, whoa, 
Oh, sorry about that. You know, we've got these early hours. I was mm-hmm. I was just having an amazing dream. I loved it. I know. And you woke me up. I know. So, wait a minute. You know? How yeah. could... Can you read my thoughts or something? Actually, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Come on, Cole. All right, okay. Well, then what was I dreaming about? You dreamed that you arrived home to discover that your home had been broken into, but it was also left sparkly clean. In fact, I think it was your dream that went something like this. Ever wake up to find all your prized possessions have been stolen, but that your home has been left spick and span? Chances are you've been a victim of the crook cleaners. Like any good Boy Scout, the crook cleaners believe in leaving a place cleaner than when they found it. And that includes the homes they rob. In partnership with the Crook Closet, the only store where criminals can find the outfits they need to feel more confident on the job, the crook cleaners work hard to ensure your most traumatizing experience is also your most pleasant one. Just listen to some of our reviews on Yelp, where we have a surprisingly high 3.2 star rating. T.O.D. in Tulsa writes, I woke up to find my TV was gone, but so was the ring in the bathtub. Jackie O. writes, My current cleaners charge an arm and a leg and do such a poor job. I felt like I was already being robbed, so it's all good. Wayne Newton Love You writes, Please, can I have my TV back? Also, can I get the name of the cleanser you used on the kitchen counter? It's so sparkly clean. And Mad Dog 472318 writes, I hope these guys burn for all eternity. There will be a special place in purgatory just for them. However, they will also hold a special place in my heart. And the best part? No appointments necessary. It's like the old saying goes, Don't call us, we'll call on you. And you don't even have to be home. In fact, we prefer it that way. The Crook Cleaners. We'll take you to the cleaners, and then we'll leave your home cleaner. Whoa, that was amazing. That is my fantasy right there. I can't believe you knew that, Cole. So, obviously not the breaking in part. I would prefer that not happen. But, uh, you know, somebody else doing all of the cleaning for me. If I never had to do my lawn again, that would be amazing. Uh, now, I should say, because my wife is listening, and also because it's the truth, my wife actually does all the cleaning at our house. Sorry, sweetie. And I, I probably don't recognize you enough for it. And she doesn't steal from me. So my wife, win, win. you could say, is she's my dream come true. So sweet. Anyway, welcome to Screen Cleaning on the Matt Townsend Show. I'm Jeff Simpson, joined here by Cole Wissinger. As usual. As usual. We're going to have a great show here today. What we do each and every week is we highlight the very best in entertainment uh, because, you know, there's a lot out there that's not good, but there's also a, a lot that's out there that is good. And sometimes you just have to look a little deeper for it. And we're going to help you find it. And in fact, we like to start out each show by giving you the very best in entertainment news from over the week. And we're going to start out with our best replacement director news. Cole, I'm sure you heard about this one. Oh, yes. This is the second 
Star Wars film director to be fired from their job. In just a couple months, yep. Yeah. And if we're honest with ourselves, this one probably came as a result of Colin Trevorrow's most recent film, The Book of Henry, being such a critical and box office flop that maybe... Uh, the execs at Disney took another look at him and thought, maybe we don't want to invest or and put our money behind this guy. And maybe just not as large of a film that he was on to do. Right. How, but, you know, he was very successful with Jurassic World, broke all sorts of box office records. So he because does it had have, Jurassic as the first word of it. Right. You know, they probably could have gotten anybody to direct that. But they know yeah. that he can helm a a very large film. So it's a little surprising that just because he has a flop. I, I wonder if this film had come out later or not at all, if he would still have this job. It's a good question. It's fun to speculate, right? But the replacement is – you've been uh, burying your lead there, Jeff. <laughs> The replacement is the director of episode seven, J.J. Abrams. Woo! He's got got the bookends of that uh, other trilogy. The question arises now, are you more excited for J.J. Abrams taking over Star Wars 9 or Ron Howard taking over Star Wars 3.85 or whatever they want to call the Han Solo? J.J. Abrams for sure. Okay. I, I enjoyed both of the Star Trek films that he directed. Mm-hmm. I thoroughly enjoyed Star Wars Episode Seven. I know a lot of people uh, did not. It made a ton of money, but you have a lot of people that complain about it being pretty much the same exact plot as Episode Four, But better. And I'll grant you that. <laughs> it's, it was very similar in plot, but it was just so much fun. Absolutely. And pretty much anything that I've seen that J.J. Abrams has touched – has just been a ton of fun. So I'm all in for that. Absolutely. Me too. Um, So we're excited about that. The best casting news, this is really interesting, but not too much of a stretch when you think about it. There's a new Queen biopic that's coming out called Bohemian Rhapsody. And there was a time when Sacha Baron Cohen of Borat fame (laughs) was uh, tied to this film. He was going to play Freddie Mercury. But uh, they, uh, Queen and um, Sasha Baron Cohen kind of went separate ways because they realized they just didn't have the same vision for this. I think he wanted to make it more of a comedy. And no. Queen wanted to make it more about uh, the success of the band after, like what the band did after Freddie Mercury passed away. And Sasha Baron Cohen's argument, which I think is very valid, like – Nobody wants to see a film without the main band leader in it, you know? Right. So they they parted ways and they cast instead uh, Rami Malek mm-hmm. from, uh, Mr. from Robot. Mr. Robot on the USA. <clears throat> so that should be interesting. But I, I have no idea what Mike Myers' role will be in this film. But because of his role in Wayne's World – it's really not that much of a stretch that he's going to be in this film. In fact, I think we have a clip of that very scene that I'm referring to. I think we'll go with a little Bohemian Rhapsody, gentlemen. Good call. I see a little silhouette of a man. He's got a moose, got a moose. Will you do the fandango? Thunderbolts and lightning, very, very frightening me. Galileo. 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 Galileo.
loves me. He's just a poor boy from a poor family, sparing his life from this monstrosity. Interesting fact. I love that scene, by the way. I love the movie, too. Interesting uh, fact about that movie and that song is Bohemian Rhapsody was a big hit in the UK, but not as much in the United States. And when this film came out, like 15 years later or so, it catapulted the song all the way up to number two on the charts, which is really impressive for to a bring song that old. To yeah. bring it back, mm-hmm. exactly. So a scene with them lip syncing in a car uh, just took the – I mean the sales took off because of it, which is interesting because now lip syncing in a car has been made famous or has been brought back to being famous by James Corden on his late show. Oh, yes. So Carpool uh, karaoke. Anyway, when we come back, we are going to go to one of our favorite segments, Jolly Good Shows. For the next, this month's pick of Jolly Good Shows, you're not going to want to miss it. Coming up on uh, Screen Cleaning on The Matt Townsend Show. Screen Cleaning proudly presents Jolly Good Shows. Classic films that have stood the test of time and are now being inducted into Jeffrey Simpson's prestigious video library. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I love thee to the depth and breadth and height my soul can reach when feeling out of sight for the ends of being and ideal grace. That, of course, is from Elizabeth Barrett Browning's Sonnet 43. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. An excerpt from the Bard's Sonnet 18. Who among us has not attempted to give voice to the pinings of the heart? This month's selection for Jolly Good Shows, Wayne's World, centers on Wayne Campbell, a love-struck slacker who in this scene, with the help of his faithful friend Garth Algar, attempts the seemingly impossible task of describing the beauty of Wayne's girlfriend using the most eloquent of words. She's a fox. In France, she would be called La Renard. And she would be hunted with only her cunning to protect her. She's a babe. She's a robo-babe. In Latin, she would be called Babia Majora. If she were a president, she'd be Abraham Lincoln. <sighs> Did you ever find Bugs Bunny attractive when he'd put on a dress and play a girl bunny? No. <laughs> no. Neither did I. I was was just asking. Mm. Poetry. Sheer poetry. Good show, old man. Jolly good show. We shall return in a month's time to reveal our next inductee into the archives of Jolly Good Shows. That 
song, of course, means we're going to be speaking with Rod Gustafson from Parent Previews. And we're going to be covering a topic that actually it was Rod's idea. And I'm super excited because we all go to the movies to escape, to uh, whether that's from your your children or from your problems or maybe uh, your job. We, we all go to the movies to escape. And we all have certain dreams and fantasies that in many ways will never be realized or may not be realized. And so maybe we like to see them fulfilled on the screen. And before we get into this topic, I want to just uh, make a disclaimer, not really a disclaimer. I just want to preface this topic by saying uh, I know we're going to be speaking about fantasies in films. It's never going to get into the gutter. So you never have to worry about that on screen cleaning. Rod Gustafson from Parent Previews, welcome to Screen Cleaning. Hey, hello, Jeff. You know what? I'm we're going to have to visit that job idea one day. I'm thinking about <laughs> Dolly Parton in nine to five. We're that's we're going to put that one on the list for later. <laughs> oh yeah, I didn't even think about this when we were compiling yeah. this list. So yes, how many of us want to fantasize that we're telling our boss what's in our mind? Yes. Exactly. Oh my goodness! Wow. <laughs> well, thank you again for coming up with this idea. I'm really excited to talk about it, and I, I think the idea kind of sparked from a, a recent major motion picture release called Home Again, which I have not seen, starring Reese Witherspoon. Do you want to give us a little bit of a synopsis of this film and and why it maybe uh, it shows what the fantasies of a lot of women may be and, and how it's played out on film? Sure. Well, Reese Witherspoon, as you mentioned, is starring in this film, and she plays a, a woman who has just turned 40, having a difficult time with hitting that milestone. Uh, she lives in a palatial home in Hollywood with her two girls. She is separated from her husband, who is pursuing a music producing career, and he's living in New York. So what does she do for her birthday? She goes with her girlfriends out to the bar. And there she meets three young men who are wannabe filmmakers, winds up bringing them home with her. Uh, there's a little sexual moment with one of them, just a warning, heads up there for her parents. Um, but then her mother, who comes over to visit the next morning and bring the children back, she was babysitting them, she invites these three men to move into her daughter's pool home in the backyard. Makes and, total sense. <laughs> yeah, and within 24 hours of script time, if you know what I mean. They're babysitting her two daughters. They're driving them to, I can't remember, music lessons or whatever it is. I'm thinking, reality people, really, you met these three young guys in a bar and now they're taking care of your little girls. Like, right. Uh -uh, I don't think so. <laughs> but, you know, it's the fantasy thing that's going on here. Um, and we've had this with men for decades where, you know, you'll have the male protagonist and there's all these beautiful women that are fawning over him. Well, this is the reverse of that. This is the female protagonist with these young men who are fawning over her. Yeah, as far as the men go, just, you know, pick any James Bond film and mm -hmm. <laughs> it describes perfectly what you just said. So yes. um, you mentioned another film that's kind of similar to this uh, in theme, which is Mamma Mia, where you have Meryl Streep, who has these uh, three men as well, uh, fawning after her. And, and each one is, we're not quite sure which one is the father of her daughter. I have not seen Mamma Mia. 
Yeah, well, Mama Mia, I must admit, okay, we gave it a C grade, not recommended for family viewing, but I got to admit, it's a little bit of a guilty pleasure for me, quite a fun movie. Uh, Meryl Streep, of course, off the charts in her performance. But once again, yes, this is one of those films of the female fantasy where she can't figure out or they, they aren't revealing which of these three men that she's had relationships with in her life are really the father of her daughter who is about to get married. And so, again, it's this idea of you've got these three handsome aging men in the, in the case of Mamma Mia, but still, um, you know, that she's been able to have relationships with all three of them. And you really spend, it, it really is there so that for people who are in the audience, women in the audience watching this movie, they're thinking, wow, which one would I want to have to be the father of my daughter? You know, it's kind of this catalog thing of pick, you know, the dating game contestant one, two or three. Yeah. Okay. So now that we have that female fantasy of multiple men in your life out of the way, let's get to (laughs) to one that's maybe a little more wholesome and uplifting. So this one's a, a recent pick, Wonder Woman, which is very timely in my opinion, because uh, right now women are are very uh, empowered in the media as maybe they should be, you know, not I should take out the maybe. Um, and in a time where they feel like, you know, their voices are not heard, I think this is a good message. And the the fantasy that is at play here is to have, of course, these superpowers that Wonder Woman has and to, you know, to be taken seriously and to be equals with men. I just saw this the other day and I was I was kind of giddy because I as I was watching it I I think I had this feeling of wow DC finally figured out how to make a Marvel film because I mm-hmm. felt while while I was watching it like it was a Marvel film but uh, I I really appreciate the message of the film and it's fun to see this fantasy of women and probably a lot of kids and men alike to have these superpowers played out on screen in this way and what I really enjoyed about Wonder Woman is she still realizes the importance of and needs men in her life. And there's a great um, a evenness of, of roles there with Chris Pine playing the male protagonist, if you will. And uh, yeah, that part of it I really enjoyed. The other thing I liked is she steps into World War One just like my wife would step into my family room with our, in our family room with our young children. And she'd put her foot down and say, that's it. Everybody go to their <laughs> corner. And that's kind of the role she plays in here, which I I really enjoyed. Yeah. So I, I mentioned how, you know, when you ask a child what they want to be when they grow up, whether it's a, a firefighter or a police officer, a lot of a lot of them will want to be superheroes as well. And for some kids in film, though, all they really want to be is older. They kind of feel like, OK, once I get older, I won't have to deal with all of these problems that I'm experiencing now as a kid or people won't won't bully me. And that is kind of the premise of this film, 13 Going on 30, which I have not seen, as well as the film Big, which I have seen. Have you seen 13 Going on 30? I have seen 13 going on 30. There's some things I really enjoy about this movie. Now, parents, a heads up. There's some sexual content and some profanity in this film, which is really unfortunate because overall, I think it has a very good message um, for adults and for children. And it's basically don't wish your life away. Enjoy your childhood. Enjoy your adulthood. 
But um, this young girl, she wishes at a birthday party that that she could be older. And so she wakes up. She's 13 and she wakes up 30 and she's the editor of this fashion magazine and quite a popular woman. But she learns that sometimes that's not everything you need in life. Mark Ruffalo plays an incredible uh, role model uh, as far as what a really good friend is in this movie as well. So, Rod, I am actually very surprised you've never seen the film Big. I haven't. I know. You know, I think I may have saw part of it on an airplane once, but I've never reviewed it officially, and it's kind of wiped from my memory. Okay, so this is Big, starring Tom Hanks in an Oscar-nominated mm-hmm. performance, if you can yes. believe it. And he, it's it's a kind of a similar setup. He goes to this fair. He can't get on a certain ride because he's not tall enough. The girl that he's crushing on, he he can't get her to take him seriously because he's not older. So he goes to this fortune-telling game, and he puts in a quarter, and he makes a wish to be bigger, and he wakes up the next morning, and voila, he's bigger, and he's Tom Hanks. And so it's so much fun to see Tom Hanks play this man-child and actually succeed in business. He gets this great job. Uh, I think he's he's either creating to- I think he's creating toys. So who mm-hmm. who among us would not love to have a job where we get paid to make toys and goof off and play all day? Um, just such a fun film, and uh, it has the infamous or uh, the famous, I should say, scene with Robert uh, Loggia, where he and Tom Hanks are playing the the life-size piano where they're dancing on it and playing heart and soul. Definitely just a charming film to check out. And it's interesting how, how kids have that mentality of, Oh, all of my problems will go away. If I was just bigger, if I was just older, I wouldn't have these problems. And yet there's another film uh, that we won't, we don't need to talk about. I don't know that we have time for it, but it's called 17 again, where it's basically a reverse Mm -hmm. of these films where you have Matthew Perry, who has the exact opposite mindset of, oh, if I was just younger, if I was just uh, back in high school where I was at the prime of my life, all of these problems that I'm having would just go away. And uh, it's interesting how, as these characters discover later on in these films, it doesn't always play out that way. Yeah, exactly. And I think that those movies, it, it again, how many times have we said this? It's so unfortunate that some of these films have content issues in them because these are really good messages to enjoy the moment that we're in and quit wishing that we were younger, quit wishing that we were older, just embrace where you are. Exactly. So we covered uh, women's fant- or the woman's fantasy in film as well as kids' fantasies in film. And uh, when we return, we're going to be talking about men's fantasies in film. And I promise it's not going to go where you think it might go when we return here on Screen Cleaning on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning, where we're talking about our deepest desires and dreams and fantasies played out on film. And we're speaking with Rod Gustafson of Parent Previews, who actually came up with the idea for this topic. Rod, welcome back to Screen Cleaning. Hi, Jeff. So really quickly, before we get on to the male fantasy in film, 
I wanted to mention one film that we neglected to mention in the last segment, which goes along very well with your uh, what you said about a film having a, a great message, but just executed kind of in a crude manner. And that is the film Liar, Liar, which mm-hmm. has one of the sweetest messages you'll ever see in a movie. And it's such a strange film because... It is such a heartwarming, uplifting film, but it is just full of very crude sequences and dialogue. It's a Jim Carrey movie, so that's not too surprising. But you have this child whose father uh, who's, uh, is divorced from his mother, and his father just continues to disappoint him again and again. And so on his birthday, he makes his wish that his father could not tell a lie for 24 hours. I'm not sure why he chose that uh, (laughs) 24-hour time period, but it really is just a, a, a very sweet message. And there are a lot of kids out there who I'm sure would love to escape in uh, with a movie or a video game or a book to get away from the problems that they're having at home. And so many children would love for their parents to reconcile their relationship. And, uh, yeah, I love the message, but I did, again, it's just such a weird film because you have two extremes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You really do. And, uh, it, it really, I, once again, you know, it is really difficult with some of these films that we're talking about, even in this segment and some of the ones we're going to be talking about here with the men's fantasies where they have positive messages, but yeah, it's that content issue. That's always a, an overriding concern that you'll have to be careful about. So speaking of men's fantasies in film, uh, you mentioned Home Again and Mamma Mia, where the women had several men in their life and their lives. And uh, this next film is called The Stepford Wives. And we're going to be talking about the original Stepford Wives, uh, which is based on the, the novel by Ira Levin. And in this film... The protagonist and her family move to this community where everything just seems a little too perfect. And whenever that's the case, it's usually the setup for a horror film, right? And I, I don't mm-hmm. know if I would call this a horror film because the the scares are very subtle. It's a very subtle movie. But uh, this woman uh, starts to discover things about the women in the community. And basically, we come to learn that... The men in the community have figured out a way to make perfect versions of their wives, women that are very subservient, who will do all the cooking and the cleaning and are always dressed to the nines. And this is probably a movie that would upset so many women today. Uh, But I actually enjoy this film as a suspense Film. Obviously, I I don't buy into this idea that women should be subservient and that they should be perfect. But uh, yeah, it's called The Stepford Wives. Rod, have you seen this film? You know, you've got me on this one because I've seen the newer one that came out in, oh, what was it? I think 2004. Which and, is a comedy. Uh, <laughs> it, yeah, and it's more of a comedy. And it actually had some positive things to say. Unfortunately, we it's right on the line. We gave it a C plus. Um, but it did have some positive things to say about the downside of of desiring this. And, and from what I understand, the original, which, you know what, Jeff, I think I may have watched this years ago when I was working in a television station, but, um, yeah, it's same sort of idea. Doesn't the older one you like, it still has that same message in it, I think, doesn't it? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So this next film I want to talk about is, I think, a fantasy of tired husbands and fathers. And Mm -hmm. it's from Shrek Forever After. Have you seen Shrek Forever After, Rod? I have. This was one of my favorite Shrek movies, even though I think it really bombed at the box office, if I remember correctly. And a lot of people were disappointed because Shrek kind of lost his edge in this movie. From a family perspective, I really appreciated the fact that Shrek lost his edge. And uh, basically, this is the Shrek version of It's a Wonderful Life. Um, There's even some quotes from the movie in there where Shrek suddenly comes to this parallel universe because he's getting older and his life just isn't, you know, happy anymore. And so Rumpelstiltskin trades him uh, one day if he'll exchange one day from his meaningless childhood, one meaningless day from his childhood. And uh, and the day Rumpelstiltskin, being the conniving guy, decides to obliterate is the day of his birth. So Shrek is no longer alive, and so he sees the world without him. As I say, it's a wonderful life. And it, it really does. It's got some very positive things going for it, and very accessible for family viewing as well, which is something we really enjoyed. Yeah, and I, again... Who among us hasn't fantasized about just, you know, being able to have a day where you can do whatever you want, Mm -hmm. whether you're male or female, you know, because I'm sure that the women fantasize about this as well, and rightly so, um, just with all the things that that they have to put up with at home and, and at their jobs, too, I'm sure. So the next film I want to talk about is, again, another one of those films, and I feel like this whole list has been like this, that I wouldn't necessarily recommend based on some of the subject matter. It is PG-13. It's called What Women Want, and we teased this a little bit earlier on the show, where this idea where wouldn't it be great, especially if you were in the dating world, how great would it be if you knew what a woman was thinking? And I know that's mm-hmm. a frustration of so many men. Just don't, you know, don't play all these games. Just tell me exactly what you're thinking or tell me what you want and I'll do that, you know. So it's Mel Gibson who by a, a, a some strange accident, I think he's electrocuted. He wakes up from conscious or from being unconscious and discovers he can hear or he can read women's thoughts, which, you know, sets off a whole string of comedic events. Uh, I, w- I actually wasn't crazy about this film, but it has a very interesting premise. And I'm sure a lot of men would love to know exactly what women are thinking. You know, I, I'm totally with you on this one, too, Jeff. And as you say, we sound like we're repeating ourselves with many of these films. The premises are wonderful. And this one I really appreciate. Um, it, currently, I am serving in the leadership of a church congregation that are all young, single adults. And we're continually communicating <laughs> to the guys. Well, this is how the women are thinking. We're communicating to the women. This is what the men are thinking. And and uh, this movie, you know, it's probably a good thing we don't know what each other is thinking. But the the premise is a really creative idea that I really enjoyed that part of it. So, Rod, we've got one more film here, and I want to let you uh, set up the synopsis for this. But as I mentioned when we first started talking about this, we go to the movies because we want to escape. And I often have felt, oh, my goodness, it would have been so much fun to grow up in the 50s and 60s and, you know, cruise down the street in a, in a nice car and, and go to all the diners with the roller skating waitresses 
and the music of that time was just so much fun. How great would it have been to live in that time? But uh, this film, I feel like, has a an amazing message that we should all uh, we should all see this film and take this message away. And I'm going to let you set it up. It is called Midnight in Paris. Well, this is a Woody Allen movie. And Woody Allen, if you've watched enough of his movies, he is the king of fantasy. Some people may not really see that on the surface, but virtually every movie he makes, you can tell he is fantasizing about something in his own life. And in this case, it's about going back to the 1920s. Owen Wilson plays this scriptwriter who believes that life could have been so much better if he lived at a different time. And he loves this particular period. And so he ends up in Paris and he's on vacation with his fiance and her parents. And he discovers he's on the street corner and this magical thing happens. This, this old, um, this old carriage comes and picks him up and he's transported into the, into the 1920s where he meets people like Cole Porter and F. Scott Fitzgerald and has coffee with Ernest Hemingway. It's a really beautifully done creative movie um, that once again looks at us fantasizing, for instance, about the good old days and how, you know, things were so much better back in a certain time period. Does a very effective job. The good news is, you know, I think kids would be bored to tears with this movie. But you (laughs) know what? We gave it a B. It's not too bad for for, um, content concerns. So, you know, you could watch this one with your teens. Which seems rare for a Woody Allen film, by the way. It is rare for a Woody Allen film. Yeah, yes. I love I love this message of you know what? Sure, things may have may have been great back then, but in the twenties they had their own set of problems too. And uh, somebody in the twenties maybe fantasized about living in a different time period of their own. You know, so yes. again, we just need to be content with where we're at. And there, you know, there are certain dreams and fantasies that we can make uh, into realities. But again, I I think the takeaway from this conversation, Rod, is that we need to be in a place where we can just be content with who we are and our life circumstances and find a way to be happy instead of. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I I think that's what most of most of these fantasy movies. It's interesting. That is the repeating message over and over is that aren't you glad you couldn't have gone through this, you know, and, and that type of thing. Well, Rod, we really appreciate your time here on Screen Cleaning, and thanks for coming up with the idea. This has been a really interesting conversation that we've had. We will take a break. When we return, we'll continue the fun here on Screen Cleaning. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning on the Matt Townsend Show. You know, you are in for a treat here today because we have... Stacy Harkey, who is one of the cast members of the very popular television program, a little program you may have heard of called Studio C. I want to do something really interesting with you, something that we like to call Silver Lining Cinema. Uh-uh. We're each going to watch a film that... Pretty much everybody else in the entire world would consider bad and horrible and unwatchable. And we're going to do our darndest to 
talk about the good in these films and to just focus on the positive. So we've got this uh, spinning wheel uh, here that's full of films that other people would consider just horrible, unwatchable, no good. So, Stacy, you're my guest. I'm going to spin the wheel first here for you. So let me just give it a spin here. So it looks like you are going to be watching a little film called Nuki. Ooh, okay. Nuki. Nuki. So, okay, let's spin it once here for me. And it looks like I will be watching Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. Oh. We'll watch them. We'll come back and we'll give our positive review for Nuki and Santa Claus Conquers the All Martians. Right. And we're back. I'll give you my review of Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, and then we'll hear from you about Nuki. So this movie, back in 1964, spent $200,000 to make this movie. And let's just say it really shows. Oh. And that's not, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I am all for saving as much money as you possibly can. And right off the bat, it becomes very apparent that they were also very interested in saving money. Nice. Uh, you know, the... Mars, it's full of these these rocks and scenery that it's clearly paper mache. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Martians have these hats that have this um, the sink piping that represents uh, uh, their antennae. Oh, and so clearly it looks like a bunch of families got together and just put together these costumes and the sets. You can tell that there were a lot of good family nights that went into this film. Little Johnny got to make some of those rocks. And it's full, and I mean just full, of stock footage of, you know, ships and rockets taking off. And I'm totally okay with that because it's there. Why not use it? it just, why yeah. go? Why shoot all this new footage when you have all this great footage that's just sitting there on the shelf that nobody's going to use? Um, there's, there's a shot... Of a uh, of a spaceship that looks like it's just a baked potato wrapped in foil <laughs> on a wire, but that's a good thing because it allows us to not be distracted by all this CGI and to just be able to focus on the story. And who doesn't now, like potatoes? Right. So getting to that story, the story of Santa Claus conquers the Martians. Martians kidnap Santa Claus so that their kids can have presents on Christmas. And the reason they do this is because they see their kids watching all these earthling programs on television and it's rotting their brains. Mm. So they want their kids to be able to play with these toys and get out and be more active. So they kidnap Santa Claus. And again, great messages. Don't watch as much TV. Get outside. Play with toys. All good messages. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Let's talk about the casting. Ooh. There's a scene where they go, the Martians, they go and consult this 800-year-old Martian. And you would think, okay, they're just going to get some really super old guy to play this. Which, you know, old people get all the roles these days. They, all the old people roles. They get them. So they took a middle-aged man, slapped some makeup on him and said, you know, talk in this really screechy, high-pitched voice. And they let they finally gave a role to a middle aged man. I love that. Yeah, so much. No, no typecasting. I love no. that. No, I love how accessible Santa Claus is in this. The movie starts out with a TV reporter okay. going to the North Pole, knocking on Santa Claus's workshop, wow. uh, the door, and uh, just has like this 
five, seems like maybe 10 or 20 minute interview that just really goes on and on. And it just shows to me that Santa Claus is really accessible. Yeah, and I like that. I love that. I love that. There's a polar bear that, that looks like it's going to grab these children at one point of the movie, but it's clearly just a man in a polar bear suit. You always see those messages at the end of the film that says, no animals were harmed in the making of this film. I saw that, and I knew, without even having to see that disclaimer, no animals were harmed in the making of this film because no animals were used in the making of this film. That's awesome. And then one other thing that I think I would mention is um, there's this robot that they enlist the help of to try to capture these children who have mm-hmm. who have escaped. And it looked exactly like a robot I made when I was in third grade. That is so charming. I <clears throat> Okay, I, I'm okay now. Yeah, that, that is it awesome. took me back. Great memories. Anything that can make me feel good about my childhood. <sighs> anyway, Stacy, now I'm curious to know what you thought of a little film that you watched called Nuki. Nuki. Well, first off, not such a little film. It's a very... Very, very long film in the sense of... Or maybe it's a little film with a big heart. There we go. I think that's the best way to put it. Nuki, made in 1978. It's a South African-German film. Basically, the plot is two lovely aliens. Um, <laughs> they're brothers. They, something happens, and they crash land in, on Earth. One gets crash lands in America. Mm-hmm. The other one crash lands in Africa. And uh, pretty much the whole movie is they're trying to find each other. And they um, elicit the help of of scientists that are experimenting on the one, the evil corporate scientist in America that that he wins over, um, as well as the tribal people. And they end up meeting together. And so first and foremost, Nuki is a beautiful story of friendship and family. One thing I did love about this movie, um, and I, I guess I learned to love this about the movie, is that there were there were no rules. I mean... Most films find themselves adhering to a rigid plot that makes sense and flows in a structure that you can almost predict sometimes. It's more of a hindrance than yeah, anything. I mean, yeah. it's just you guess it and you're like, this is the end of the movie. Yeah. Nuki? You couldn't do that with Nuki. You, <laughs> there was no way to, to guess where the plot was going and you were, you were just – it kept you on your toes the whole time. For example, there's a clip where um, Nuki in Africa – falls into a river and this raging river that's leading to a waterfall and you're like oh no what's going to happen and instantly you see this shot of this giant anaconda python thing slither in the water and you're like that's coming after him nope he just falls off the waterfall edge python never comes back into the story it's very very free structure the rules of of movies like you know you normally establish a rule um, and you follow it, like be it in this universe, gra- like gravity. You're like, oh, is gravity a thing here? Yes. And if it is, you follow that rule. Here they had animals that some spoke, some didn't. No rules. This this is Nuki in Africa. We don't need rules. Some people were speaking an African language, and then all of a sudden they were speaking English. At one point he could fly. Another point he can't. He's he's doing magic. He can't. It's just you don't know where Nuki is going. It was uh, quite the adventure. It's unpredictable. Uh, completely yeah. unpredictable. You want something that's gonna really just just twist and turns at every corner. Nuki, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I will say too, when it comes to like production, you normally get these, and like nowadays you get this a lot where it's everyone's into computer and anim- computer graphics, computer animation. Everything looks a little unrealistic, or at least it feels so. Um, Nuki really 
mastered that style from the 80s where it was kind of using puppetry. Master's a strong word. Nuki really used the style from the 80s where it was puppetry. You know, even Steven Spielberg in Jurassic Park had the like the practical dinosaurs there where they could touch it and it wasn't just put in later. Um, Nuki and his brother were totally these puppet creations. Um, they were They were honestly terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> a little, I'm kind of a pansy when it comes to scary movies. In the first <laughs> shot, I was like, "Do I need? Do I need to turn the lights on?" <laughs> and I think Nuki really reserved a little spot near my heart. Maybe Nuki taught me to love again. Yeah, I'm so glad. Well, this has been this edition of Silver Lining Cinema. Two another two great films that most people would not call great. But we found a way to find the greatness in Santa Claus Conquers the Martians and Nuki. Stacy Harkey from thank Studio you. C, thank, thank you, you so much for being on thank Screen you for Cleaning. Having me. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll continue the fun here on Screen Cleaning on the Matt Townsend Show. You know, speaking of the weather, Cole, it's dark in here. Yep. It's crazy. I mean, I know a lot of people get depressed by the rain, by cold weather. I'm not one of those people. I kind of like it. And we have these large sweeping windows in the front of our building at the BYU Broadcasting Building. Yeah. Facility. Um, So normally it's bright and sunshiny at 9 o'clock in the morning on a Friday when we're doing this show. And today it's very overcast and dreary and it's seeping into the whole building. And and it's wonderful. (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of the weather, I want to talk about our panning for good segment for today. There's good in them dire hills. So, obviously, it's not the same weather here as it is everywhere else in the United States, or the world for that matter. So I wanted to give you some ideas of things you could do with your families at home on a day like this where the weather's not great or there's just not much to do outside that you can think of. Why not go camping in your basement? Build a fort with your kids. They love that. They just hear the word camping. It doesn't matter if it's not outside. It doesn't matter if you're not in a sleeping bag. Just say the word camping and you've got them. Uh, I've done this a couple of times where I will, I will create a restaurant in my own kitchen. I will take the part of the waiter, the chef, and I will even serenade my daughters and my wife with a wonderful song. So this is just another thing you can do to create atmosphere and to create memories for your loved ones. And then also another thing you can do is instead of reading a book, how about just play a little game of telephone story where you start off by telling one sentence of a story, pass it on to the next kid and the next kid, and you all build this story together. It's so much fun. They're so silly and ridiculous. But again, creating memories, doing things inside together that are not watching a movie or, you know, playing a video game. Fun things that you can do over the weekend when there may not seem like there's a lot to do. Anyway, more ideas like this on every show of Screen Cleaning. That's going to do it for this show. We'll see you next week.